Hey everyone, this is Adam Ellenboss from Nightlight Astrology. Happy Friday, everybody. Uh, today, we are going to take a look at Mercury squared to Uranus in a week of very busy transit activity. We have yet another one to talk about. So Mercury square Uranus today. Um, and uh, we're also going to take a look, uh, just preview the upcoming Jupiter Uranus conjunction, which lands in the last 10 degrees of Taurus. And so does today's first quarter moon in Taurus. So we're going to take a look at the last decan of Taurus as a way of talking about today's first quarter moon and what it might be saying, but also previewing what the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction might be saying on the uh, level of the decan meaning, which is, uh, by the way, if you don't know what decans are, I'll, I'll explain it a little bit, but it's an ancient uh, form of zodiacal division that astrologers used. And uh, according to these divisions, they would uh, help to... Um, deepen our understanding of planetary significations, uh, just like bounds or triplicities or domicile rulerships or exaltations. Decans were one of the uh, traditional dignity categories, you might say. Uh, and they, they actually predate Hellenistic astrology. So anyway, we'll talk about that and look at the last decan of Taurus today um, and uh, uh, also Mercury squared Uranus. So before we get into it, don't forget to like and subscribe. You can press, you can tap, you can click, you can smash, you can hit, you can uh, gently, lovingly uh, express your finger downward <laughs> upon the button, <laughs> whatever you want to do. We appreciate it when you like and subscribe because it helps the channel to grow and helps us build our community. Um, so thank you. You can find a transcript of today's talk and any of our talks on the website at nightlightastrology.com. Uh, we had our first webinar last night. It was awesome. Uh, thank you all for attending. If you want to attend next month's webinar, which continues the series, um, or if you want to purchase uh, last night's talk, <clears throat> we'll have it for sale in the Nightlight Shop, which is a new page I'll be telling you about next week. Um, and we'll have that available uh, soon. So um, next month is Neptune in Love and then Uranus in love in April. So the series continues, and you can get the replay if you missed it. Like I said, it'll be available on the shop, and I'll be telling you about our new shop page soon, which will include a lot of different cool recordings that you can pick up and um, talks and, and other cool stuff. So anyway, uh, if you have any questions, by the way, about anything you find on our website ever, info at nightlightastrology.com is the way to get in touch with us. All righty. So I'm getting over a cold. This is the cold that never ends. I've been, this is my second week of having a cold and it's not bad enough to where it, it's like, send, it, it's like, I feel like I need to go and get an antibiotic, like the heavy duty artillery. I hate taking those things, but you know, once in a while, I guess it, you have to. And uh, Ashley's been feeding me all sorts of witchy stuff that I love. But uh, I still sound like a frog on and off. Like I was like good for three days. And all of a sudden I started sounding like a frog again. And uh, yeah, it's just um, a yucky, gross, cold, not bad enough to hold me back from doing stuff, but not, <laughs> you know, but bad enough to just not go away. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, got to, hopefully it will be gone soon. All right. Well, on that note, let's put the real time clock up and take a look. You might be saying, hey, look, why aren't you talking about Venus and Pluto? Aha, but we already have two days worth of Venus Pluto content. If you missed it, go back and listen to what we did yesterday. Um, it was a good talk on Venus Pluto and the day before good talk on Venus Pluto. And if you missed it last night, there was a webinar that included a lot of, uh, Venus Pluto. And then, um, 
Earlier in the week, we looked at Mars-Pluto. It has been a week of Plutonian action, hasn't it? I'm lo- I would love to hear your stories. By the way, if you ever want to share a story, you got a good one from one of the transits, use the hashtag grabbed in the comment section, name the transit and tell us your story. Or email it to us, grabbed at nightlightastrology.com. It's always a good way to share. I'm waiting for a lull in all of these transits because there's been so many back to back to get in another storytelling episode. I've got one ready to go. I'm just waiting for a time. They, they, they make good filler, really, when it's like, okay, there's no major transits for like three days. Yeah. So uh, anyway. <clears throat> all right. Well, the reason we aren't talking about Venus and Pluto today is because we did it for the past two days. And today we also have Mercury and Uranus. Voila. And look at, I mean, if you just track this out, I mean, so many transits this week, my God. But anyway, if you look at this, this is Friday, February 16th today, march it forward a day and you've got the, by tomorrow morning, Mercury will have passed through the square. So Mercury is square to Uranus today, February 16th. Now you could have been feeling this coming uh, since yesterday, about three degrees off starting February 15th. We take it forward and give it about three degrees and you maybe take it through till February 19th, Monday. I think it's interesting that we have um, a Uranus dynamic in the sky with um, with Mercury for the Super Bowl this weekend. I'm kind of wondering if there'll be some kind of technological snafu. <laughs> like they're very, very well, they're very well could be. Um, so anyway, we're looking at Mercury Uranus today from Aquarius to Taurus. The Aquarius-Taurus axis is lighting up back and forth like a pinball machine this month. Um, and, you know, there's some patterns we've already spent a lot of time talking about. We're going to continue talking about some of those today. And then I want to shift over to the fact that uh, the other thing to, to notice is here, Friday, February 16th, we have the first quarter moon in Taurus. You can see it circled right there with Uranus. So that first quarter moon in Taurus I wouldn't usually spend a lot of time talking about a first quarter moon. This one is impactful because it's a first quarter moon exalted in the sign of Taurus where Jupiter and Uranus are coming together. It is in Venus's sign while Venus is going through the conjunction to Pluto. If you don't think that means anything, you're wrong. (laughs) It it does, especially given that we have a repeat of Mercury, uh, of the Uranus, uh, excuse me, of the Aquarius-Taurus axis through Mercury square to Uranus. So we're going to look at that first quarter moon in Taurus, and I'm going to be looking at it from the standpoint of the first quarter moon being in the last decan. And the the fact that Jupiter Uranus will also conjoin uh, in the last decan is significant here. So something that can bring some of these things together. So that's how we're going to be looking at it today. Now you've seen the real time clock. So uh, let's go ahead and start off by talking about Mercury Uranus. What can you expect? People frequently think about Mercury as the rational mind and communication and speech and intelligence. And so if we take those significations, which are real Mercury significations seriously, then uh, when you put it with Uranus, the god of revolution, emancipation, originality, uh, out-of-the-box thinking, sudden, dramatic, unexpected changes, especially with an emphasis on freedom and uh, a breaking of uh, habits or limits or um, boredom, then you have a combination that yields things like original thinking, sudden flashes of insight or, or ideas that liberate or break up the monotony or shift the momentum. You have communication that is unexpected. 
You have foot and mouth syndrome where you suddenly say something you don't mean to say. You have uh, the electricity of Uranus and the inventiveness of Uranus alongside of Hermes, who was literally called the inventor by some ancient astrologers, especially when Mercury was in the first or second house. Did you know that? It was a sign of any, any Mercury placements or even planets in Mercury's signs in the first and second house are sometimes associated with originality because they were associated with the native and what the native was in possession of. Well, if you're in possession of something mercurial in the first or second house, you might be original or inventive. Isn't that interesting? You could also be uh, articulate or thoughtful or skillful or, cr or crafty in some way. So when Mercury pairs with Uranus, you also have people who suddenly develop new skills, talents, abilities, whose articulation of an instrument is particularly brilliant or whose skill as an athlete is remarkable. Um, it, both Mars, Uranus and Mercury, Uranus have a correlation with breaking records in sports. Uh, and that's because Mercury was associated with sports. And you might go, well, why? Because Mercury went back and forth, up and down courts, like basketball or hockey or tennis, the back and forth, the back and forth, uh, that was associated with Mercury. So is something like chess, right? So, you know, brilliant maneuvers, uh, brilliant displays of craft that break previous limitations or what we think is possible is suddenly, uh, what we think is impossible is suddenly now possible because someone does it. These are Mercury Uranus significations. When they get into a square, there's also the idea of something that's stuck around mind or intellect that needs to be freed up. And so breakthroughs in thinking, breakthroughs in stubborn systems of thought, breakthroughs around technology or a kind of a quality of inventiveness that's in the air, uh, brilliant, brilliant Mercury Uranus qualities that we can look for. There's also the tendency to get excited and nervous mental stimulation for some people is not welcome. Let's be real, right? You know, some of us are like, no, 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 thanks. I'll, you know, don't give me a cup of co cosmic coffee in addition to my normal coffee because I can't handle it. Or maybe you can't even handle a normal cup of coffee. I think I'll take a sip. Watch for overstimulation it is possible to feel like you're getting plugged into an electrical outlet when Mercury and Uranus get together. Um, biting off more than you can chew, over-promising and under-delivering, um, the, the bigness and the grandiosity, uh, the, the Promethean impulse toward freedom and toward the A-Day, the ideas in the mind of God. Mercury, Uranus just loves this. But it, some of that doesn't translate so easily into the... In, the world might be stubborn in accepting the imprint of the new idea. I don't know. Like trying to take a cookie cutter and impressing onto the hard frozen ground the shape of the cookie. <laughs> it's, you're going to break that plastic, you know? And the earth is sometimes resistant to the changes that uh, we want to impress upon it. And that's especially relevant since we have Mercury in an air sign and Taurus, Uranus in Taurus, an earth sign. So the idea here might be to change a very earthy, tangible, sensual something or other. Could be about changes we're trying to make in love and relationships. Could be about changes that we're trying to make with respect to things like pleasure, wealth, uh, beauty, stability, peace, enjoyment. Uh, the, the realm of Taurus is the realm of uh, trying to, uh, sometimes it's about enjoyment and pleasure and wealth. And there's like a dark minotaur. There's this, you know, the, the sort of shadow of greed and possessiveness. And there's also this attempt to try to get back to something natural and beautiful and simple and peaceful. And again, the word natural comes to mind. 
Aquarius might, Aquarius's ideas about what are natural, mm, sometimes they are. Sometimes it's like Aquarius is the choice you make. Uh, Mercury in Aquarius is the choice you make in the library to pick up a book about native people and learn more about indigenous customs all over the earth. Beautiful. I mean, why not? Why not educate yourself and learn about something outside of our, you know, a, a colonial tradition or whatever, you know, it's, it's important to do those kinds of things. And Mercury in Aquarius keeps us accountable to broadening our mind. On the other hand, you know, Mercury in Aquarius is someone who thinks that uh, nature is all uh, beautiful and peaceful. <laughs> you know, you might have a naive kind of uh, pie in the sky, abstract, uh, you know, romanticized ideal about what nature is. And it's like, well, just watch watch BBC's Planet Earth, as you've heard me say on this channel many times before. I've watched that with my kids the other day. I told you guys about that. I was like, by this point, I think it was like a year ago. But anyway, we watched it and I was like, oh, God, I <laughs> the gazelle, <laughs> the poor gazelle. <laughs> so, you know, not everything is so not everything is as pristine, like Aquarius's view of the world is beautiful, no doubt doesn't mean that the earth is so receptive to that image that doesn't conform so easily to that ideal. And so we might be looking at a transit that presents us with the ideal way in which the earthy realm of Venus should or could be does not mean that it actually is that way. These are important little nuances to keep in mind as these two planets are getting together. But I like the idea, the image of a blueprint being drawn out across a beautiful table and you're looking at it, and here's the design. What is it? I've used these examples in the past month a few times. It's a garden. It's a bonfire pit. It's a, it's a playground. It's something that you're building for the sake of pleasure and enjoyment here on Earth, but you're, you're in the stage of the design. You know, The design is in the mind. It's a potential that's trying to come down from some celestial, airy space. And, and bring about a revolution in the shape of the sensual space. Okay, so Mercury, Uranus, very much in the sky today. Be aware of the fact that this energy will, at the very least, try to stimulate different ways of seeing or thinking about things, different ideas, forms of communication that are sudden, that disrupt the norms. These are good, a good shakeup mentally um, and uh, intellectually or on the level of forms in our mind that might need to consider uh, something new or to open our minds in some way. Th th this is a good part of the transit. All right, so enough said there. Now, let's go back to the real-time clock and remind ourselves of the fact that we also have first quarter moon in Taurus. Now, if we step this up just a little bit, let's go forward, whoops. Yeah, let's go forward to April 20th. Now, those of you guys who uh, track transits know that April 20th is the day that Jupiter and Uranus get together. Now, the sun will be just entering Taurus and Jupiter and Uranus will be at the 21st degree of Taurus, which falls into the final decan, the last 10 degrees of Taurus. And we also know that this uh, moon that we're talking about, uh, here we go. First quarter moon also falls into the last 10 degrees of Taurus. So I think we're getting a little bit of a preview, a foreshadowing of the Jupiter-Uranus dynamic with respect to its last decan significations. So that's what I want to look at. 
sometimes you pick up on first quarter moons, sometimes you don't. Remember that this uh, cycle got started with the new moon in Aquarius squaring Uranus, this kind of moment of breakthrough, like, aha, clarity. So, um, but the Aquarius-Taurus connection, here's one image that comes to mind. I want to reiterate this before we go into the last decan of Taurus. <clears throat> Aquarius, think about it, like this is one way of understanding Aquarius, and there are many, but think of Aquarius as the Olympics, the, the highest potential, athletically speaking, for humankind. You know, I mean, this is what it is ideally, right? And the, the gold standard is the highest of the highest of that group of people. So that gold, the top tier of the little trophy uh, stand, what do they call those? The, uh, the winner's circle. You get the person at the lowest has bronze. The next step up is silver. The next step up is gold. Gold medal. So that highest of the high and the people who make it to the Olympics are already elite, right? But then you have the, the highest of those elite and the final, the, the one that gets the gold medal is of course the gold standard. Aquarius is like the gold standard. It holds forth for us. It, no matter who you are, you could be someone who has gold standard ideals that are completely different from your neighbors. But that sense of there being this gold standard ideal in the mind of the universe, that on the, on the archetypal level, that's very Aquarian. And especially in how distant it can make us feel from it. Oh, geez, I've got a dad bod. I'm not an, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an Olympian, you know. <laughs> I've been working on it. <laughs> so, you know. Oh, I'm so far from that. You know, I'm so far from that standard. Or it can inspire you. I'm going to reach for that standard. I mean, Olympics is a, probably not the greatest example in terms of how an, uh, a gold standard inspires us normal people because very few of us get inspired to go become an Olympian, I think. But you get the idea. So <clears throat> now Taurus, by comparison, right? Think about Taurus and you think about the the sense that this earth could and should be stable beautiful simple peaceful enjoyable luxurious that's it think about how dark and twisted things can get when we try to realize that greed possessiveness uh, lust jealousy the minotaur is the shadow of that idea that picture this is a heavenly paradise here on earth and it's meant to be enjoyed. And it's meant to be secure and stable and peaceful and simple and beautiful and luxurious. And we'll go, sometimes we'll go to the extreme of killing people to receive or realize that. Right? So Taurus can be very dark. I mean, don't forget Adolf Hitler was born with the sun in Taurus. Um, when you put those two things together, wow, do you have some powerful idealism about what our experience of joy and pleasure here on earth can and should look like that uh, that's a that's an intoxicating powerful image of what the what our lives could look like now 
some of us could use that image because we might be way too stressed out. We might be working too much. We might be pushing ourselves too hard, uh, chasing things that are unrealistic. And so, you know, this is the kind of image that could be about like, here's an archetype by means of which you can simplify and create more ease. Beautiful. Aquarius Taurus gives us a blueprint that allows for uh, a, a gentler, more fluid uh, and stable and, and simple life. Getting back to nature like that. Uh, on the other hand, the archetypal combination can give us a kind of gold fever for the most beautiful, the highest and most luxurious, right? And it starts to get kind of privileged and elitist and materialist. You have to be careful of these things. So remember that, okay? That's the, that is the combination that is underlying Uranus and Jupiter getting together in Taurus in April. Why? Because it is coming off from aspect after aspect after aspect between the Taurus and uh, Aquarius square, especially with Pluto entering Aquarius. Now, with that in mind, right now, as the sun is in late Aquarius, we have a first quarter moon in late Taurus. And then again, we'll get Jupiter Uranus conjoining in the last decan of Taurus as well. So I want, given all of that background, I want to remind us of what the third and final decan of Taurus is all about. And I'm going to show you, these are the, the main card that uh, Susan Chang associates with the last decan of Taurus in her book is the seven of pentacles. And notice the reflective quality, looking over the earth, pausing to look at your work, pausing and reflecting, the work is not finished, pausing and reflecting, is it enough or should I work for more? Pausing and reflecting on something tangible that is in a process. Deep card, really. All right, we're going to hear what she says about this last decan. <clears throat> so the planet associated with the last decan of Taurus is Saturn, and the card is the Seven of Pentacles. For the first time since our zodiacal year began, we confront the mysteries of Saturn, Father Time. Now she's talking about the year of the zodiac from uh, the, the um, standpoint of the decan of Saturn, I believe. So anyway, we confront the mysteries of Saturn, Father Time, the great malefic, the holder of the sickle. Saturn's reputation is twofold. God of agriculture and fertility on the one hand. People always forget that. God of endings and destruction on the other. Indeed, Saturn was thought to have two consorts, Ops, wealth, and Lua, dissolution. Scythe-bearing Saturn is Chthonic, an earth god. It is part of his nature that what is planted grows, but also what dies is buried. We begin and end in earth. It's no coincidence that so many seven of pentacle cards are agricultural. It's what we expect to see in the suit of Earth. As we suggested in Sacred Doubt, Five of Pentacles, Taurus Deccan number one, the five and seven are inverse of each other. In the five, the Lord of Worry, we anticipate and try to forestall disaster. In the seven, the Lord of Failure, we assess and try to remediate what has gone wrong. And for one brief moment in the Six of Pentacles, we see the miracle that takes place when we get it exactly right. Life takes root and thrives. When I first started reading tarot, I found the seven of pentacles cryptic, the farmer's affectless expression. I'm going to hold this up while I read. 
The farmer's affectless expression gave no clue as to whether the card's spin was negative or positive. What did his resting posture convey? Laziness, fatigue, distraction, contentment, discouragement? In the early days, I would say, I just, I would just say that he was waiting for something, though I had no idea what. Years later, when my dad was living with us, I would see him pause in the middle of clearing snow off the driveway, leaning on the shovel. He would look before him and behind, trying to calculate how much was left. Because he had Alzheimer's, his concept of time was poor, so he would stop more and more often. His posture was exactly that of the Seven of Pentacles. Sometimes I would find myself doing the same thing in the garden, in the middle of a big cultivating job or weeding. The feeling was, the time to do this is now, but the job is so daunting, how can I ever finish? Yet how will I ever succeed if I don't? On the tree of life, oops, here we go, let me close that. On the tree of life, sevens find a home in the sephira netzach. Netzach can mean victory or glory, but another translation is eternity. I've always felt this had something to do with the continuity of life, its persistence. Though an individual life may end in death, though its vessel may decay or transmute in form and appearance, life writ large always prevails. Therefore, I read in the Seven of Pentacles a sort of timelessness. While the Six may depend on the Kairos, the exact right moment, the Seven of Pentacles stands outside of it. This may mean that the Seven of Pentacles fails from the perspective of linear mundane time to achieve what we want it to do. But in another sense, it has all the time in the world. In that moment of waiting experienced by my father, time seemed to pass both quickly. How can I possibly do this before sunset? And slowly, this is taking forever. It cannot have objectively done both. Time itself is infinite. Only our perception of it is finite. And this too is one of the seven of pentacles lessons. The major arcanum of Saturn is the world. I'm going to hold this up so you can see it. She's talking about the world card. It seems like a strangely buoyant card for the greater malefic Saturn. And it forces us to deepen our understanding of both the planet and the card. The key, I think, lies in the world's wreath a shape that is sometimes illustrated as a, ves as a vesica piscis or an ouroboros. That rough ovoid has a, has a dual role to confine and to protect. Saturn, the outermost visible planet, delimits space and time. Like our skin, which it rules, separates Saturn separates outer space from inner space. Like our bones, which it also rules, Saturn offers internal rules for support and strength. Lord of time, Saturn sets a terminus on our lives, cutting the long thread of life, but also often release from the body when it can no longer serve. Life without those limits is unprotected. Consider this, a cancer cell is a cell whose telomeres, the genetic code determining a, li a cell's lifespan, have grown abnormally long. Without the correcting influence of Saturn, cells proliferate out of control, wreaking havoc on the body. So the world card shows a dancing figure who is protected within the safe confines of a human life, whose freedom depends on its limits. When you look at the card of Saturn ruled decans, consider the nature of boundaries. In what way does the card say this far and no further? <clears throat> I'm going to read you this last part because I think it's pretty interesting. The Seven of Pentacles expresses Saturn's rulership of the final decan of Taurus. Here, inertia overcomes the great bull. Production is ground to a halt under the Lord of Failure. Uh, <clears throat> Pamela Coleman Smith drew the Seven of Pentacles in 1909. According to Marcus Katz and Tally Goodwin, her illustration alludes to the potato famine of the 1840s when late blight infested the fields and caused mass starvation. The blight fungus caused tuber cell walls to collapse, leading to rot. 
a Saturn pathology, if there ever was one. In the arc of this Deccan, at 26 Taurus falls the formidable fixed star Caput Algol, also known as the head of the demon. This eye of Medusa has an evil reputation. Indeed, it is often considered the worst star in the sky. The Gorgon was best known for two things, her man petrifying gaze, a surely Saturnian fate, and her decapitation by Perseus. Thus, Caput Algol correlates to misfortune and decapitation. When the Picatrix describes this Deccan as a face of misery, it is hard not to think of Algol. Its baleful influence, however, is only half the story, as when Perseus used his mirror to slay Medusa, as when he then used her head to defeat his own enemies. Caput Algol can serve as a potent protective talisman, one that turns violence furiously against the aggressor. Its rage is particularly feminine in character, for Medusa's monstrous origin was a punishment for the crime of having been raped. Sorry, I'm not sure why I have this thing that is continually popping up. Let me just, I'm going to do that. There we go. <clears throat> this Deccan image, this Deccan, the Deccan images handed down to us by observers past are as curious as ever. Many describe an elephant or a man like an elephant with its great size and slowness, its thickened skin and pronounced tusks. The elephant is a profoundly Saturnian animal. Its gift is patience, memory, and the ability to withstand hardship, experience leads to stamina. By facing tasks that seem insurmountable, we come to know and correctly gauge the weight of toil. My friend and podcast co-host Mel Melanine has a long history of disliking the Seven of, of Pentacles. On her version in Tabula Mundi, she depicts a Kabbalistic version of the fall from Eden, a fall which was the price of the knowledge of good and evil. That's another way of understanding this card. Hard-won knowledge, a hero who is sadder but wiser for his ordeals. She concludes with this little thing. When I've drawn the seven of pentacles, I've had traffic slowdowns and made dumb mistakes that were time consuming to fix. Quite often, the thing that needs fixing is the result of having not done it right the first time. Other times, much needed repairs have finally come through and imbalances have been rectified. Like the five of pentacles, the seven of pentacles brings timing issues, but more having to do with personal negligence than breakdowns in communication. One thing I've learned about working with the seven pentacles, patience and a good plan B are essential. More constructive manifestations include all agricultural chores like weeding, weeding, gardening, and planting bulbs for next season. <clears throat> and she goes on. When you draw the seven of pentacles, take your time and scrutinize whatever you're working on intently for flaws. Remember Murphy's law, whatever can go wrong will. Draw on past lessons, learn to remedy accidents due to oversight or negligence. Be skeptical of fate and make use of your contingency plans. Should everything go sideways, call it a learning experience. Take a leaf from Samuel Beckett's book and next time, fail better. <laughs> I love that passage from her and I love this uh, card in particular for the last decan of Taurus and this first quarter moon that we're experiencing today, as well as the upcoming Jupiter-Uranus conjunction. You can take whatever you want from that passage. There's a lot of things that she says that I think are relevant and interesting and I won't try to restate all of them, but I will say this. This Seven of Pentacles card to me strikes me as in the last decan of Taurus, a time to reflect on what we have built, what we desire, what we intend to build, and to say, is it really worth it? Or is it time to change course or directions? Should I keep building and developing or what I, is what I have enough? I suspect that this seven of pentacles cards with Jupiter coming into a conjunction with Uranus will prove to us as, um, it will prove to be a time where we are reflecting on something that needs or requires change, probably because we're looking over and realizing that things aren't quite where we need them to be. 
And that might feel like failure, but Jupiter Uranus coming together in this last decan also provide us with a breakthrough that can allow us to continue the work. The Seven of Pentacles in one sense can be looked at as a card of reflection upon the work you've already done and the direction you want to go going, taking things forward. It can also be looked at as a card that says, huh, gosh, is there an easier, simpler way of doing this? Or have I gotten something wrong and do I need to adjust? In order to do so, we have to be okay with failure, redirecting. We have to be patient. We have to sort of be willing to pause and redirect a process. But if we do, Jupiter Uranus coming together in this deck and suggests, you know, major positive revisions, uh, a breakthrough in a process that has uh, a lot of work already put into it. And maybe there's some adjusting that needs to be done, or maybe we're at the point where, you know, uh, something we've been working on, it, you know, it, it catches a wave of momentum and is ready to carry us forward. But watch what's happening in the sky today, right? With this first quarter moon in Taurus, see if you can pick up on any of those that's kind of the, the, sort of the image of the seven of pentacles and reflecting upon, revising, reconsidering, uh, looking at, you know, how far you've come with the process and whether you want to keep going with it, facing some level of fatigue or exhaustion with a process that requires a lot of work and knowing that, hey, if I keep going with this, Jupiter, Uranus in April might help me uh, create a little bit of a breakthrough with respect to that process that I'm I'm in the midst of. A lot of different ways of looking at that card and its influence, but I wanted to bring it up today, share Susan Chang's meditations, give them to you to consider, um, and uh, see if we can't also notice uh, that we have a little microcosm of the same Deccan present today that will be present when Jupiter and Uranus get together. So all right, that's, that's what I've got for today. I hope you will enjoy Mercury Uranus, that it will be stimulating and not too overstimulating, you know, not overstimulating. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see you guys again next week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye.